Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend Ann Chavruta, Yordana Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Shkalim, daf Yud Chet, page 18. It's another doozy of a daf in that it is long and that there is much to discuss, and we're going to try to streamline and speak about very few concentrated topics here. I am interested here in the 10 menorot that King Solomon, Shlomo HaMelech, that he constructed. And the question is really what happened here that, you know, if there's a mitzvah to make a menorah, to make a menorah, a candelabrum, whatever, you put it in the Beit HaMikdash, what are we doing now with 10? So the Gemara here says, Esa menorot asa Shlomo, Shneemar vayas etz menorot hazahav, Eser kemishpato, v'yitain pe'echal chamesh miyamin v'chamesh mismol. Meaning there's a verse in Divrei HaYamin Bet that says specifically that he made 10 Candle, he's menorot, whatever, whatever we're going to tr- define a menorah um, of gold, right? And and he put them in the hechal, right, in the sanctuary of the Beit Hamikdash. And the pasuk, the verse in in Chronicles says five on the right and five on the left. What does that mean? Are we talking about five on the right, of five left of the whole ulam of the whole big, um, you know, it's not an amphitheater, but the whole a hall of the temple or is it of the right and the left of the of the menorah from Moshe? What's going on here? So the Gemara goes on to say, if you want to say that we've got five in the north and five in the south, it doesn't have to be that the menorah is going to be in the south because we've got a verse from Shemot. Now this is a difference between uh, a Torah verse, a verse in Shemot, the book of Exodus, versus a, a Ketuvim verse, the verse in Chronicles, which obviously, the, I hope it's obvious, the weight goes to the Torah verse. It says that the, the menorah is against the Shulchan, against the table, on the side of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, toward the south. Temana means toward the south. So instead of saying, this is why I said, you know, you, you could understand this right and left of the of the verse to be different locations within this big sanctuary of the temple. The Gemara says, no, no, really, it means that you've got the main menorah, the one that Moshe made back in, you know, back in the Torah times. And then Shlomo made another 10 and put five flanking it on the left and five flanking it on the right. And I find this to be uh, even just a funny, funny is not the right word, a funny premise because I feel like that menorah is pretty spectacular. So the idea that you're going to enhance it by adding menorahs around it is, I don't know, like there's something puzzling to me about the, whether it's a matter of the aesthetic or even the idea that, you know, are we adding to the Kedusha here? Like, I'm trying to understand what was Shlomo's goal? What was the king's goal here in doing so? So the Gemara goes on to say, Afal Pichain, even though they had all these menorahs in the in the Hechal, in this big sanctuary, Afal Pichain, Lo Hayam Mavir, they would only ignite Elishel Moshe Bilva. They only lit the, the menorah that Moshe had made to begin with. The others, it seems, at least according to this position in the Gemara, were decorative. So, fine. So, again, it says that the the menorah, meaning the menorah, the one from Moshe, had, it was made of gold, it had its lamps, and it would burn in the evening every evening. Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yehuda, Omer, 
Al kulan hayamavir. So this is again, it's a difference of opinion. There's no, they would light all of them, all of these, I guess, eleven menorahs, the ten that Shlomo had made and the one that Moshe made. Hayamavir shnitmar veta menorot veneroten levaer bekmishpat lifnei hadavar zahav sagor. So his proof text is again from Divrei Hayamim, from the Book of Chronicles two, and the verse is the menorot with their lamps that they should burn according to the ordinance before the sanctuary of pure gold. Now, this idea that we're talking about pure gold, you know, becomes important. Zahav Sagur, which is an interesting way to say pure, if you ask me, right? It's closed gold. I guess the idea is that there's nothing there but gold. Which also, you know, you're as I think about it, pure gold is a very soft metal. I'm not sure. I feel like there's a piece of this that, you know, I'm not clear on what they really were doing in terms of using very pure gold to make uh, gold is heavy, but but pure gold is uh, very is a yeah, soft. It's, it's very soft. It's very malleable. Malleable. That's the word I'm looking for. Exactly. So that doesn't seem like it would be good for a structure like a menorah. It's one thing if you want to make, I don't know, some decoration for a lady's dress. You know, I've made that up. Okay. So what happened? So the Gemara goes on, and we've got another verse from Devarim. All of this is from chapter four in Chronicles two. And it would, the next verse says, So there's flowers and there's lamps and there's the tongs, that's milkachaim. They're of gold and that perfect gold, mechilot zahav, michlot zahav. Perfect gold, heimkilu zahavo shol shlomo. The Gemara here says, they finished the gold of shlomo, meaning they depleted his supply, apparently, right? And part of what this means is that they would purify the gold right until it was so pure that it would be the, the this perfect gold to be um it, that's what it had to be for the menorah but what that means is that if he had this massive supply of gold shlomo melch was very wealthy right and then it's it, it dwindles because in refining the gold the the sheer volume just you know is is less I don't know if you want to say it evaporates, but it, it, it essentially, you know, the, the sum total of it diminishes because whatever impurities are in the metal are being, you know, you know, sucked out, so to speak. And so then you end up with less. And again, I keep thinking like, but Shlomo Melech did so much decorating in gold. If you look at the beginning of Sefer Melachim when he's decorating the temple and, and also his palace and everything. And I'm thinking, it's just remarkable to think that the menorahs are what kind of took the end of his supply, if if in fact it did. So the Gemara continues. <clears throat> Excuse me. Taner Yehuda b'shem Asi Hayash Shlomo Notel Elif Kikarei Zahav Umachnisin Lakor Umotzian. So Shlomo would take a thousand Kikarei Zahav, these loaves or whatever, these measures of gold, and he would put them into the crucible, and then he would take them out, and he would repeat this process until that same gold was you know, was so refined that it took one kikar, right, to fill, to fill what was again going to be that menorah in the, in the Mishkan. He took all, he took a thousand to get to one. Now, I don't know if this Gemara is, or the verses for that matter, I don't know if it's um, speaking in a little bit of hyperbole to make the point of just how much, or if it's really exact, in which case, if that's the case, then his initial supply of gold was rather impure if it takes a thousand to get to one. And then the Gemara explains this more directly. 
Tanya, Amar Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yehuda, Masa b'menorat zahav she'asa Moshe b'midbar. We're going to talk about Moshe's menorah that he made in the wilderness. Vayta yiterad dinar zahav v'echnisu alakor shmonim pa'am v'lo chasrat klum. They took the gold that Moshe had in the in the wilderness in the desert, and they would you know refine it. They put it into a crucible and they would refine it. It says here they did it eighty times, and nothing was ever reduced. Meaning there was no excess, there was no impurity. The same gold that was there at the begin with remained there at the end. You want to talk about pure gold? That's pure gold. And then this point is, you know, a comparison between the gold of Shlomo and the gold of Moshe. So then the implication here, right? It says, Dan, I know you're going to talk a little bit more about Brera really later, but here we're talking about this is very specifically about this state of purity. If it doesn't reduce, so again, Moshe's, Moshe's gold was never lacking as compared to Shlomo's gold that was reduced by such a great degree. And um, now, you know, I take a step back and I think this is part of what intrigued me about this whole discussion about the, the menorah and also Shlomo's goals, right? Meaning he's coming to to somehow adorn the Beit HaMikdash, I'm sorry, the Right? It's the first Beit HaMikdash. He's coming to adorn this sanctuary, which already holds the spectacular, very gold menorah of Moshe. And he's going to add other menorahs there to be just as spectacular, right? And whether they're lit or they're not lit, there's something about Shlomo's um, approach here that seems to like to say, okay, we're going to go to the nth degree. We're going to I don't want to say excess in an because I feel like we all relate now to excess in a negative way, but maybe it is a negative way. Meaning Shlomo was certainly known for some of his excesses, but there's something here about, um, you know, we're going to do it differently or more, better, bigger, golder than it was in the Mishkan. Now that we're going to have the Beit Hamikdash, and I, I'm sure I'm reading something in here, but and again, I still have my question about the soft metal, but. It, there's just something that seems reflective of Shlomo's personality in this whole, you know, decorative escapade. I just thought, you know, there would be more of a discussion about whether or not this was allowed. You know, it's one thing to say that the, because you know, exactly like you say, like, in other words, the menorah is a clay kodesh. And it's, you know, it's literally one of the holy vessels. And to say that those other road, if you wanted them for outside in the, you know, as they're in the courtyard place, that would make sense. But the fact that the Gemara declares that they were actually placed inside sort of surrounding the menorah didn't really make a lot of sense. And I think that's why there's sort of the struggle between were they all lit or was only one lit? Um, It makes more sense to me to say that only one was lit because we don't really see anywhere, particularly than when the Mishkan gets built, that you were going to ever light 10. And were you really allowed, like, we don't have more Mizbeach. We don't have more of anything else. Why would that be allowed with the manure itself? So I certainly can understand why Shlomo would build them. But I agree with you. I think there's a lot of unanswered questions to this particular passage. I will note that Shlomo does seem to have put 10 shulchanot as well, meaning 10 menorot and 10 tables. But again, like, what's he doing? Like, the temple has very specific parameters, you know, that's a lot of Chumash is telling us exactly those specific parameters. So, yes, there's something he's doing here in making this very beautiful, ornate structure 
where he's going more, doing more, going above and beyond in a way that we might have expected rebuke. And at, at the very least, we don't yeah, see I, I That's what's interesting here. So I'm going to move on here to the Mishnah, um, which discusses, you know, this thing about the 13 Shofar wrote. And, you know, as you mentioned, Dan, before, we were going to talk a little bit about the concept of Brerav, which pops up again. And I want to mention it here because I think one of the things I want to do with this podcast is to pay attention to some of sort of the recurrent halachic concepts that we see pop up again and again. And this concept of Brerav, right, the idea of, I guess, what we really would call retroactive clarification, right? Uh, you know, we saw in, we, I think we've seen basically in almost every masakha that we've learned so far. Um, and so here, you know, where it pops up is that there's a discussion about what exactly the 13 shofar wrote, the 13 collection chests were for and what they were labeled for. And Rabbi Yehuda has a particular opinion that there was no shofar for a obligatory kinin. And that's a type of bird offering that was given. And the reason for that is, is that let's say somebody gave money, right, for, you know, keening in that, you know, for a bird offering into one of the shofarot, and that person died before the, the mizbeach could actually be given, you know, there would be a problem uh, that essentially, what do you do? You don't know whose money is what in there. And basically, there's this money in there that sort of just has to be thrown out into the sea and can't really be used um, for anything. And so one of the solutions that they have here is, you know, that they said, okay, so let's say that, you know, you sort of had this chatas money that's what they keep calling is sort of like left to die, right? That would just sort of need to be throw out, thrown out. So the Gemara says, So just take four zuzim, which was basically the price of a bird, take it out of that shofar, and you'll just toss that into the, you know, toss that basically into the river. Right. And all the other money in that shofar, you should be allowed uh, to do. And therefore, you know, so you could, according to Rabbi Yehuda, really have a shofar that's set up for this particular type of uh, uh, of korban. And so the Gemara basically says, Ha Amrinam Ba'ama, Rabbi Yehuda, Brebra. Right. The Gemara says, We've taught elsewhere that Rabbi Yehuda never holds by uh, the principle of Brebra. Now, what's interesting is when I was preparing this, you know, this idea of retroactive clarification, like you, can you say that something is designated retroactively? So in other words, can you say that four coins, even though they were not designated ahead of time, you can you go in and just say, hey, these four coins, these are the ones that we're going to designate as belonging to that woman, this theoretical woman who passed away. And then the other ones will be designated as the ones for people who are still going to bring that korban. And the answer is, this is not a concept that Rabbi Yehuda holds by. We're actually going to see a lot of discussion of this in, it's going to come up again in Masachat Yoma. And I really just wanted to point it out is this is sort of a recurrent theme, this idea of Breirat, of retroactive designation or, you know, uh, that, you know, of clarification that I think we've almost seen in every Masachat so far. I think it's to be expected, right? That's the kind of the nature of the Gemara that these things kind of, Right. Come back I on think themselves. It's, just, it's a particular, you know, it, it, it's an important halachic concept and just to pay attention to it. The last thing I want to just mention is uh, we're introduced to a person here, Yehoyada. Um, and particularly at the end, um, you know, the Gemara, the Mishnah actually mentions Yehoyada, the Kohen Gadol. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, he's mentioned as sort of having set up these, uh, 
these chests, right? That that's actually an Ahmed Aleph. So I know I'm sort of uh, jumping around um, a tiny bit here. Um, and, you know, particularly um, it's, I'm just flipping back here. So I lost it for a second. Um, so, you know, it's mentioned here um, at the, uh, at the end, just give me one second to find it. Right. Zemi right? This was sort of a drasha of Yehoyada the Kohen Gadol. Um, and so, you know, it says, Asham hu Asham Hashem la Hashem, right? So he quotes this pasuk here uh, that is in uh, Vayikra, Parake Pasuk Yotet, um, and that basically, uh, you know, they're going to give a halacha based on his interpretation. So first of all, I find it interesting, you know, we often talk about this concept of drash as really having been sort of like an innovation of the time of the Tanaim or sort of that pre-Tanaitic period, even starting with the Zugot. And here we have somebody, right, Yehoyada, who we see engaged in that type of activity. And then at the end of our daf, there's even more discussion about him where they quote this pasuk uh, from Dibra Hayamim, Bet, Perak Chavdalet, Pasuk Yodalet, um, which talks about, you know, how many shofar wrote for the nidavot did he actually put out did he put out two or did he put out one and where were they placed and what were they for so i just wanted to do a little bit of a who's who of who he um was exactly so he was a kohen gadol who uh who you know obviously served in the beit hamidash and he was there during the the reign of um of atalia and yoash uh who were kings of yehuda and the thing that's important about uh yoash is that there was sort of a whole a rededication and a renovation that was done to the Beit HaMikdash. And Yehoyada really put into effect um, many, uh, you know, special new procedures uh, for the the Beit HaMikdash itself. Um, And you can read a lot about this actually in Divra Hayamim Bet Perak Chapdalit. So I encourage everybody just to briefly look at that uh, Perak when you go through the staff and just to open it up. Um, and, you know, that basically the, the Beit HaMikdash had essentially fallen into disrepair and the Kohanim, you know, didn't really want to repair it. There wasn't money set aside to repair it. Um, and, you know, he really, with the king, made sure that there was money um, uh, to make sure that this would happen and, um, you know, sort of repaired it. So he's a very important person. And that's why his, you know, he really sort of rededicated the Beit HaMikdash at a much later period and made sure that it sort of was restored to the way uh, that it should have functioned. So, you know, just a quick who's who, look at that Perak in Dibra Hayamim Bet, Perak Chavdalit, but also to note that he's really quoted as giving his own form of Midrash Halacha much earlier than we even sort of, I think, think of as the time of Midrash Halacha. But obviously this concept of it, this teaching of it must have been a very old teaching that really was passed down from generation to generation. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I feel like if I can make the generalization about Shkelem, which I haven't taken a real step back to think about it yet, but I think we're introduced to a whole slew of different personalities, both in this intermingling, I guess, of what's happening in Tanakh and what's happening on the pages of the Gemara. And I don't know if this is a Yerushalmi thing or if it's specific to Shkelem or if we'll find it in other Masechtor as we go. But there's something very pleasing to me about this kind of like encounter with biblical personalities in the pages of of Tanakh, of the pages of the Talmud, where I feel like 
I don't know what it really tells us about the people from Tanakh, but it certainly tells us something about what the what Chazal thought about the people from Tanakh, right? And and that in I itself totally is, I agree think, with also that. interesting. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to our Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 